Hi, this is presenter Crystal Dinapoli, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Indigenuity, a weekly radio show hosting conversations with Indigenous knowledge holders showcasing all forms of Indigenous ingenuity. Indigenuity is broadcast live on Triple R each Sunday afternoon. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website or Twitter at IndigenuityAU. Welcome back to Indigenuity on 3 Triple R. And uh, I think it's important before I start to acknowledge that Indigenuity is very, very lucky to be airing out from the unceded lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations. And so I would like to pay my respect to elders past and present and acknowledge their continued connection to our lands, waterways and our beautiful sky country. So on the topic of sky country, uh, you know, it's been an exciting week. Uh, My very first book has been published. So on Tuesday, April 26th, uh, the book that I've co-authored, which is called Astronomy Sky Country, uh, which I wrote with fellow Gomorrah astrophysicist Carly Noon, has finally hit the shelves after a very long time of writing. Uh, so for a bit of background, uh, this book is the fourth book in the First Knowledge series, which is published with Tamsin Hudson and the National Museum of Australia. It's a very cool series, not because I'm a part of it. <laughs> I honestly am just a huge fan of it um, as an individual because... There are six to seven books uh, which explore different areas of Aboriginal knowledge, and that is absolutely what Indigenuity is all about. Uh, I've been lucky to interview some of the other authors in the series on Indigenuity in the past, and um, I, I have interviewed some future authors within this series as well. So the uh, the books, they explore a range of topics from songlines, from building on country, for caring for country, uh, and uh, where we are at the moment, where we're looking upwards and we're looking into our sky country. And so in celebration of this book uh, coming out, uh, I wanted to spend uh, this beautiful Sunday taking us on a tour through Sky Country. Sky Country is, uh, it's, it's, it's not as simple as just being the skies above, but it is, it is so crucially important. It is everything when it comes to Indigenous knowledge systems. It's the home of a lot of our stories and our songs with tethers with really important links to all other areas of Aboriginal knowledge. Aboriginal knowledge, as discussed previously on this program, but if you are just tuning in for the first time, (laughs) it's important for you to understand that Aboriginal knowledge systems are very interconnected. That word is so important. Every bit of information, every creature, every being, every plant, every rock, Everything is connected to everything else in this universe. And it becomes pretty obvious when you delve into Aboriginal knowledge systems. And so uh, the, the sky country essentially being this, uh, I guess, like this, this stage. This, you, you can give so many different analogies, but um, this really crucial feature in which everything links back to. And so for today, I thought we could do a bit of a tour of sky country. And I could show you some of my favorite bits about it. And hopefully you get, get you interested in learning more. And so I wanted to start off talking about a really important object in the sky. And that is, uh, for me, it's for the moon. So the moon is a really important object in sky country. For a lot of different communities, uh, the moon plays a really important role. In particular, it's quite uh, often linked to uh, a lot of of women's business in a way. 
and it's it's I guess it's similar to a lot of cultures around the world, which there are similar cycles for women uh, that are similar to the moon, and so it is linked to things like fertility. But today I want to talk about some sort of practical uses for the moon. And so before I begin talking about the ways in which the moon informs us about the environment that we are in, I wanted to talk about ways that we can actually classify the moon in its different phases. And so I wanted to share a story that's coming from Yolnu country, which talks about their moon man, Galindi. And I've shared this before on, on our Triple R, but I think it's really important in this episode where I'm talking about sky country and I'm going to get into the nitty gritty about the moon, its different phases and what we can tell from that, that I think it's really important that I do share this story which helps describe those phases. So the moon man Galindi in this Yolnu tradition is a, he starts his life very bright and so we see him starting off as this new moon coming into life as a very thin crescent. And this represents his youth. So we're in those early stages of the moon and this is Galindi and this is him in his prime. Unfortunately, Galindi is uh, one to partake in the finer things in life without really sort of um, pulling his weight. And so what he does is he gets quite lazy. He starts to overeat eating a bit too much and that's uh, the trait of greed is not something that is usually smiled upon in a lot of Aboriginal communities. Sustainability, putting in your equal share, um, a lot of those traits, I guess you could call them, are really important. And so a number of these stories, these stories which encode Indigenous science, which encode this astronomical knowledge, will also teach us certain moral values. And so this is a great example because Galindi is essentially doing quite wrong by his community. So he gets quite lazy, he starts taking more than what he deserves, and over time he also starts to gain weight. And so this is uh, just a way of describing the fact that the moon starts off in this new moon phase. In his youth, he is the crescent, but then he starts getting a bit, bit older, but also a bit bigger, becoming the full moon. Unfortunately for Galindi, uh, he, he, he has a wife who's really, she really doesn't approve of his behavior. And she, uh, she tries to convince him, I hope in wholesome ways, <laughs> because uh, she finally reaches a point where her methods of trying to convince him are no longer wholesome. And she decides to uh, physically help him lose weight through the use of an ax. And so I feel like it uh, probably doesn't need to be said that indigenuity does not endorse violence, also doesn't endorse body shaming. Uh, so, you know, this, this tale, it's, uh, it's still, it's interesting to reflect on because it is a, it's a quirky story which shares us a lot of information about the moon itself while also re, um, I guess, uh, reinforcing those community values. And so, unfortunately for Galindi, he is fatally wounded. He manages to escape. It's supposed to be up a tree. And uh, he's, he's essentially given a second chance at life. He, he dies. He loses his uh, previous immortality, which is just a, a little characteristic he had, not too, too pivotal to uh, what I'm trying to convey right now. And, uh, he's, he's, but he's given the second chance at life. So when he is cut with these axes, he starts to wane. He's past the full moon phase. We are getting back to essentially that, um, that, smallness, that smallness, that rebirth that happens with that new moon when everything is dark. And he gets this second chance at life. So he starts off as a, as a crescent. 
And you would think that uh, going through something as intense as that, that Galindi would have learned his lesson and that he would be starting afresh, learning from past mistakes and moving forward into the future. Unfortunately, uh, he has learned nothing. And so Galindi falls back into those same sort of traps of greed, of laziness, of uh, not doing his fair, his fair share and taking more than his fair share. And this story repeats. And so as you can tell, this is just a cyclic story meant to describe the way that that moon is that one object which is changing throughout, throughout the month, the way that it goes through the cycle of phases. And these phases are actually really important. They're very significant for a number of different applications. For example, in Torres Strait Islander communities, the phase of the moon will indicate to you a number of things that are really important to understand about your environment. And for communities up in the Torres Strait, fishing is a really important uh, source of food as well as a recreational activity. And if this is something that you want to do in those beautiful waters, you need to understand how to, I guess, maximize your, to, I guess, go about fishing in the most efficient way possible. You don't want to uh, make something more challenging for yourself or something that's going to result in a less than favorable outcome. And so what they do is they've recognized the way the waters change across different cycles throughout the year. And one cycle which happens every month with the lunar phases is, uh, I guess, um, uh, an impact that happens in the water. So the moon, it's, it's really, it plays a really important role. The moon has a gravitational influence on the planet, on the Earth. In particular, it influences our tides way more than anything else does, way more than the sun does. Although the sun is large and it has this impact on us, the moon is largely what drives our tides. And so uh, when, when we think about our solar system, we can think about the way that, yes, we have a, the Earth, and our Earth is orbiting the Sun. And then we also have the Moon orbiting the Earth. And when the Moon is in between the Earth and the Sun, so when it's sort of blocking out, you know, in, a, in perfect conditions, this is when we would get an eclipse, we are having the addition of the impact of the Sun's gravity with the impact of the Moon's gravity. And so along that sort of line of sight towards the Sun, towards the Moon, we're going to be having, I guess, the maximum of our tides in that way of pulling. If the moon is on the far side of the earth, away from the sun, we are right in the middle, we see a similar effect. So now what happens if we're at those midpoints? So we can think about, yeah, when, it's, when the moon is in between the sun and the earth, or when it's on the far side, it's pulling us in those direction uh, with the sun. It's agreeing with the sun. But at those midpoints, instead, we have the sun in front of us, and it's sort of like we have the moon to our side, whether the moon's to our right, whether it's to our left, it's to the side of us. It's pulling us in a different direction from which the sun is trying to. And so what happens at this time of the month, this is when we would have our quarter moons. So it can be the first quarter when we start off after the new moon, or it can be our third quarter when we have passed our full moon and we're heading back into that darkness. And so at this time when we have essentially our moon by our side and our sun in front of us, we get these things called uh, neap tides. And so this is when the impact, the gravitational influence of the moon and the gravitational of the influence of the sun are sort of starting to cancel each other out a little. 
And so instead of having extremes, having our, our highest tides or having our lowest tides, instead, this is actually a point where we have sort of our calmest tides. And so this is really important. So during these times of the month, Torres Strait Islander people will go fishing. Uh, this is a practice that is absolutely still seen and endorsed today. It is, it's a very practical way. With these neap tides, these sort of calm halfway tides, the water's not churning as much and you're much, ab- uh, you're much better able to see uh, your prey, the fish that you are trying to capture. Another use for the moon actually, once again, belongs to the Torres Strait. And this is looking at the moon in those days after the new moon. So we've gotten very comfortable in this conversation we're having here now, you and me, that uh, the moon has these phases that it goes through. It has these different stages. And a few days after the new moon, we get a crescent moon. And these crescents are really important. And the orientation of the crescent throughout the year is really important. Sometimes those little, the, the crescent, those little tips of the crescent moon will be pointing up straight away from the earth, very directly. It's like imagining a bowl that is starting to set down into the horizon. When this bowl is setting upright to the Torres Strait, uh, to, particularly to the Merriam community up in the Torres Strait, this is said to be Meb Metalog M. And it's a time of year where the moon is upright like a bowl and it's collecting water. And while it collects the water, it's keeping the ground dry. And so this is around the time of year where you would actually be experiencing what we call sagir in the Torres Strait. It is the dry season. Different times of year, we're going to see that those crescents, the orientation of them has shifted. So instead of being this bowl that's upright pointing away from the earth, it's going to be sort of tilted as though the bowl is starting to tip over. In the Torres Strait, this is said to be the time of Meb Awag M. And it means uh, that it's signifying the time when the moon is tipping over, that bowl is tipping over. All that water the moon was holding has spilt out. So this is the time of year when you experience the kooky wet season, a time of monsoons. And these crescents are very important because they help predict that. They are acting as a seasonal calendar for really important uh, environmentally, like conditions are very significantly changing up in the Torres Strait and the crescents of the moon and their tilt help inform about that. The moon means a lot to a lot of different communities. And so I've spent a bit of time up north, but I want to have a wander down to sky country, down over a lot of New South Wales and Southern Queensland visiting the land of my community, the Gamilaray, my mob. The moon plays a very significant role for our community. In one way, it is very useful for predicting weather. So our moon man, his name's Baloo. And every now and then, Baloo starts to build himself a hut. He's trying to keep himself safe inside. And we see this, we know he's building this hut because we see the moon and we see that this halo has started to appear around it in the sky. The halo is a 22 degree halo. Uh, It's a very common feature. And that 22 degree uh, is referring to the diameter of the halo across the sky. So it's quite a large sight. 22 degrees is the equivalent of, approximately the equivalent of if you were to make a fist with your hand, hold it up at arm's length, 
and raise that fist towards the sky. And then you do that with your other hand. You are holding two fists up, touching each other at arm's length up towards the sky. And that distance that they cover, that is the width of the moon halo. So it is big. So if, you ever, if you're ever out there, you can see some sort of icy, cloudy sort of haze in the sky. And you're not quite sure if it's a halo or not. That'll be one good way of you figuring it out. And so this moon halo that Baloo is um, that is Baloo is surrounding himself with is supposed to be a hut that is going to be protecting himself from incoming inclement weather. So this is referring to rain. Moon halos uh, they form preceding wet weather events due to ice crystals forming in the atmosphere, which impact uh, and redirect the light that's coming back in from the moon. And so uh, when we see this moon halo, we know to expect the rain. And this is something that's used not just by our mob, but indigenous communities around the world. There is a really strong association between the moon and with the rain. Another story, which I really love sharing because I, I think it, uh, it encodes a lot of different little bits of knowledge about sky country in it. And um, it's, I feel like it's just a nice tale but it involves our moon man, Baloo, as well as our sun woman, Yi. And the tale talks about how uh, the sun woman, when she sees the moon man, she is absolutely enamored. He is gorgeous. And she decides to pursue him across the sky. But unfortunately for her, Baloo is just not interested. And so he tries to get away from her, always sort of out of, re out of reach, crossing the sky. He starts to sort of zigzag, trying to get away from her grasp. And so why I find those two details very interesting and why I have to explain them to you now. We're talking about him trying to evade her, trying to run away. And at the same time that he is zigzagging, sort of like how we probably would if we were getting chased by a croc, crocodile or something. Uh, but he's trying to zigzag away. And why would he be doing that? And this is because, uh, well, wait, okay, let's start with the first point. He's trying to run away. He's evading her. He's always keeping out of reach. And this is uh, actually a pretty fair description of the way these two objects cross our night sky. They travel at pretty similar speeds, but uh, when we actually measure it and we track it, we figure out that the moon actually does pass across our skies that fraction faster than our sun does. So it's something that you, with a very long intimate uh, knowledge of the skies have coming from a culture with tens of thousands of years of evidence of looking up to these skies that you could pick up on and so the moon is faster than the sun but he's also zigzagging and so to understand this descriptor i sort of want to take you a bit into sky country once again thinking about not just the skies above but actually the role our planet plays the role earth plays in our solar system and how it travels. So the sun crosses our sky and it sets our days. It really is the, the most significant object in the skies. And it is also the, uh, the main body that we, uh, the Earth, orbit around. It is the body that all the other planets in our solar system orbit around. And it is also, because of the way the moon orbits us, it is also... Uh, essentially in that plane that the moon is orbiting too. And so the impact this has is that when we look up to the skies and we see the path the sun takes across the sky, so we can draw this line in the sky, and it, it's a very significant path, it's called the ecliptic, 
we notice that all of the planets in our solar system and even our moon all follow approximately this path across the sky. And that's because we're just all trapped in that same sort of plane. We're all orbiting in that same sort of flat disk. And so this is a significant feature for a lot of mob. Uh, there are a lot of stories which talk about the sun woman uh, carrying a bright torch, particularly this story comes from Tiwi Islands, talking about the sun woman holding this bright torch as she marks the days as she crosses sky country. And that she is also followed by the moon man who comes along with his smaller torch. And he is often accompanied by his four wives, which are the uh, observable planets, Mercury, Venus, Jupiter, and Mars. And they're coming along with their smaller torches. And so as they're all crossing this really important path, they don't cross it consistently. So on short-term timescales, we're seeing these things go straight across the sky. But if we're actually to track these paths relative to that, that really important main road that the sun makes, we notice that sometimes the moon and the planets may be on that exact road the sun was on, or maybe sometimes they're a bit above it, or maybe sometimes they're a bit below it. And so over these longer timescales, we actually see that, yes, the moon man, he does zigzag across the sky to try and get away from the sun woman. In the Gomorrah story, though, it talks about, I guess, a bit of a happier ending. It says how the moon man, uh, you know, one day he realizes, oh, he's actually quite taken to the sun woman and he decides to cover her in an embrace. And so this description is actually talking about a very cool event, which I've never seen in my life and I really long to. But this is talking about a total solar eclipse. So it's talking about that act of the moon covering up the sun. And this is, uh, this is a pretty rare phenomena. This is something I've never seen. I'm sure many of you listening probably haven't seen it. Although I've heard rumors that next year, next year, yes, next year, maybe this year, I need to check, um, but uh, that we're, there actually is supposed to be a sol total solar eclipse that is observable from Australia. In particular, I think I've heard Sydney and somewhere out in the oceans over to the west, you'll be able to see it quite nicely. But these are quite rare and in any given region, they may occur, you know, 400 years between, which is a significant time scale. But the further you delve into knowledge about sky country, you're going to learn that this is actually quite small on the scale of Aboriginal uh, culture and Aboriginal knowledge systems. And if you want to learn a bit more about that, uh, there, there does actually come the plug for the book because that was something I really wanted to highlight when writing Astronomy Sky Country. Uh, I did actually include a, a subchapter dedicated to highlighting the timescales that we deal with when we explore Indigenous astronomy. And so I wanted to turn our conversation towards having a, I guess making you aware of the way that we're treating Sky Country currently and the issues that we foresee with it. I guess we put a lot of emphasis at the moment that, you know, there's a lot of discussions about the way that we're treating country and a lot of the issues that country faces. And I talk about these a lot on indigenuity, uh, particularly um, being able to uh, relate to witnessing, as many people have, the devastation of things like bushfires in Victoria and also the impacts of severe flooding and how a lot of these issues are seen to worsen into the future. So it's good that we're having these conversations about the way we treat country of the land and uh, if you want to 
hear any conversations about this, I actually recommend you do go to rrr.org.au, look up Indigenuity, and I, rec- I recommend uh, the conversations that I've had with Victor Stephenson, uh, the conversations I've had with Bruce Pascoe, and also with Zena Cumston. So if you are interested in learning a lot more about that, I feel like those are three great conversations. And uh, I guess with sort of following on from that idea, though, there are a lot of issues that are impacting Sky Country and its health that we don't really talk about. And so I feel like I am obligated to bring these to your attention. For one, uh, there are some pretty major changes that are happening in our skies at the moment. Changes which are being accelerated by adv- advancements in technology. We get very excited, right, as humans. We, f- we learn how to do something. It's very cool. And then we, we just dive into it. And we sort of have a history of sometimes doing that without really understanding the long-term consequences of that action. And so at the moment, one of the, the biggest changes that Sky Country is facing is in the form of artificial satellites. I say artificial satellites because as an astronomer, our natural satellites are what we call things that orbit other bodies. So our moon is a satellite. Artificial satellites, I mean man-made satellites, things that we are creating and that we are chucking up there. And so uh, Elon Musk's Starlink is probably the most significant contributor to that at the moment. Uh, He's already put up, I don't know, I think over like a thousand or so satellites, unfortunately aiming to put up 40,000 in the next decade. And just to put that into perspective, because you might think, okay, what's the, what's the big deal? Like it's, it's, it's up there, it's sort of out of the way, probably not thinking about it. And it is bringing a resource to people. Starlink is supposed to be offering internet access, which really is important, right? But if you're listening to me in Nam, if you're in Melbourne and you're looking up the skies, <laughs> I'd say with you and look at them tonight, but you know, knowing Melbourne weather, I don't know if they'll be available tonight. But look, the next time that there's a, the clouds are free and you go out there, if you look for stars, you're not actually going to really get a proper picture of what stars exist up in the sky. If you head down to rural areas, we tend to be quite blessed with uh, thousands of stars that you can see. In my town, we can still see the Milky Way. <laughs> I got to go home recently and I was very happy to see that beautiful concentration of stars that splits our sky in two. But that is a very fragile feature. But if we're in Melbourne and we're looking up, we can usually see 100 or so stars. Sounds like a lot. It really isn't. Uh, So we're not being able to see a whole lot. But these satellites, these Starlink satellites, I've seen them cross over Melbourne. You see them perfectly. They are very bright stars. They look like stars. They are very bright objects. They reflect a lot of light. They look like really bright stars. They are quite dominating. And so you can imagine, if we can only see 100 or so stars that tend to be unfortunately quite faint, and yet in 10 years, there are going to be at least 40,000, just from Starlink alone, of these really bright reflective satellites, you're going to lose what is the natural essence of the sky. We are going to be looking up and we'll be seeing a lot of really quick movement of things that we have placed there. We are going to be hiding sky country We're going to be hiding the stars and the features in which a lot of Aboriginal knowledge systems are so tightly linked to. And to me, that just astounds me. Like, I I can't imagine looking up and seeing thousands of these things just taking over, completely dominating the skies. And they aren't the only company who are looking to do this. 
And this isn't just an issue of cool. We call them mega constellations, these features. Having these thousands of star satellites that are just taking over the skies. But the other issue exists is that we're also not really good at getting our rubbish down. Those satellites fail, crash into one another. They may very well end up stuck there. I'm not trying to cause fear, but this is actually something that is being discussed. It's a, it's a risk that we do face, that it is, isn't as easy to get a lot of this debris down. And with that many things orbiting up in our atmosphere, if one were to crash, one object was to crash into another, it could cause complete chaos in that system. It may deflect that second satellite into another, and it, it's sort of like a domino effect that just cascades. And that could have a pretty serious impact on Earth. In particular, it could genuinely prevent us from leaving Earth. It could make it very near impossible to be able to take off and explore anywhere else. And so I just feel like with that, there's a lot of excitement coming from things like Starlink, but I feel like there needs to be a lot more caution and discussion about what we are doing and that long-term impact on it, of it, as well as, you know, a discussion which I feel like we haven't really had, which is, do we have the right to be doing these things? These Starlink satellites, these mega constellations, they aren't the only thing that is wreaking havoc in sky country. This is an issue I've spoken about quite a few times before, and it's an issue that we do delve into, into in our book, which has just been recently published. So talking about Astronomy Sky Country by fellow Gomorrah astrophysicist Carly Noon and myself. But we also talk about the impacts of light pollution. We have a lot of very beautiful native species, very wonderful mammals that, and marsupials that like, mammals and marsupials, but we have like a lot of, we have a lot of native animals which are very specific to this area of the world. And unfortunately, things like artificial light pollution in their environments is very detrimental to those species. A lot of them rely very strongly on cues from the sun and day lengths to know when it is time for them to be breeding and to be birthing young into their environments or to know where to travel to for uh, the next part of their cycle or season, whether this be where they usually get their food from or whether they serve as a food source for other native animals in our environment. In particular, like the Bogon moth, which is a migratory or migratory species, which is uh, very heavily influenced by light. And it also serves as a very crucial food resource for a lot of our native possums. And artificial light pollution are driving them in an abnormal direction. So we have just countless examples of the way that light pollution impacts animal health and cycles and animal, like their balances in their cycles. The way that it impacts human health relating to sleep disruption, even tumor, cancer suppression, uh, you know, it's just, there's, there's a lot of things that we don't understand or a lot of people don't know about light pollution that we are just experiencing on the day to day. And it's pretty crazy to me because it's one of the most unnecessary forms of pollution. And it's also one of the forms that is most easy to correct. And so in talking about these topics, I really want to continue this sort of dialogue talking about the ways in which we are harming sky country and the ways in which we should be treating it with respect. And a big problem, I guess, in the way that we're approaching things is that we tend to approach them with this excitement, with this enthusiasm, without stopping to really 
think too much about the way it impacts people different from us in the way that different from scientists, right? Like scientists are like, cool, let's, let's, let's uh, proceed in a certain direction. But they're not thinking about cultural impact, not thinking too much about the fact that a lot of cultures around the world really are connected to the skies and really rely on the skies for a number of a uh, number of different things, a number of different uh, knowledge systems. And so, I wanted to uh, share a beautiful, a beautiful story, talking about a path towards these type of um, this type of recognition. Uh, hopefully, on the path towards something that we refer to as sky rights. And so, this works much in the way is um, that land rights and native title do. Um, and even our sea rights. And I wanted to share a story about a sea rights claim that was made by communities in the Torres Strait, which actually used astronomy to prove their connection and to prove their position. So in the Torres Strait, we had the historic Mabo decision, um, which led to recognition of the fact that Terra Nullius is an insidious myth and that uh, Aboriginal people Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, but very specifically Torres Strait Islander in this example, um, have a long-standing connection to their lands and should have the right to govern, look after those lands in the ways that they want to. This was approved, but uh, it didn't extend out into the seas, which is a bit absurd given uh, the Torres Strait is is comprised of all these different island communities who have thrived on those waters for a very long time way longer than Australia as a modern country has existed. And so astronomy was used to support this claim. And so I want to talk about a, a, a moon dance, which is called Gej Tagaya. It's a sacred spiritual moon dance of the Miriam people, a people in the Torres Strait, which links the islands of Mer and of Mabuag, and I apologize if I mispronounce that. That's I'm one of those readers who doesn't do a lot of talking. Uh, and so I find out usually when I say a word that I am saying it the wrong way. But this sacred spiritual moon dance has some pretty key lyrics, which are Gej Tagaya Milpanuka. And this means moon rising over home. And this is actually combining two different languages. Gej Tagaya is the Miriam Mer language phrase meaning to rise over home. And Milpanuka is actually the Mabuag dialect term for the moon. So this song, these very key lyrics of this beautiful song are actually combining these two different languages. So during legal proceedings in the mid 2000s, talking about sea rights and arguing to be granted them, to recognise the long-standing connection that these communities have with those waters, the judge travelled to Mer, the island of Mer, and observed testimony presented by elders. This featured Uncle Elo Tapem, who is actually co-author of a book that has come out a couple months ago, which is called... Um, uh, <laughs> I have to remember off the top of my head, by Dwayne Harmaker, Elo Tapem, as well as a number of different... Um, uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander elders, and it explores uh, the way that Indigenous astronomers read the stars. That is the title. And so Uncle Elo Tapem, he sung to this judge this song, and he explained the dance and the traditional dress and its importance and relevance to Miriam and Mabuag 
connect um, to communities. Apologies. And so this uh, this song that is shared by these two islands, these islands are actually over two hundred kilometers apart, which is a very significant difference. They lie uh, almost due east and west of one another. And as the Miriam people sail home from Mabuag Island, they will see the full moon rising over Mer at dusk or the crescent moon rising at dawn. Gejdegaya and the moon demonstrates the long-standing connections between Mer and between the island Mabuag and helped islanders win this battle for sea rights. And so I find this pretty significant because when we talk about sky country, for a lot of indigenous cultures right around the world, we are talking about a place that is not seen by these communities as being separate from land. And so for, I guess for a lot of Western cultures, when we think about skies, we think about outer space. We think about a place that is disconnected and it's a completely different entity. For a lot of indigenous communities around the world, the skies are governed by law. They are the home of these knowledge systems and our stories and our histories. And a lot of the things that are happening to sky country are really impacting those connections, those stories, the way that we are able to see our knowledge in the skies and be able to connect with it. And so I think it's important, given the progression from acknowledging Terranellis as a myth and that land rights should be way better than they are at the moment, but that they should be deserved, and that sea rights as well are very logically deserved, I feel like we should talk about sky rights. And not in the way, as I've said before, it's not in the way that we're saying don't go to the skies, don't fly plane, like we, we control that. It's just more than that every person who wants to alter the skies in some sort of way or to make an impact is obligated to think about the way that that does impact other Indigenous communities. And so I'm going to leave you with that. If you do like those thoughts and ideas, I do actually genuinely recommend reading our book. Uh, we do talk a lot about that. Carly and I are very focused, not on just sharing what's really cool about Indigenous astronomy, but also a lot of our concerns for ways, um, thing, I guess, things that are happening that may hurt it, and also trying to suggest to you all ways that we can move forward that will lead to a better outcome for everyone. And so I just want to wrap up for today. Uh, today we've had a bit of a tour of sky country. I've lectured about things that I think are important about sky country and also encourage you if you are interested in learning a whole lot more. Uh, I have had a book come out this week uh, co-authored with Gomorrah astrophysicist Carly Noon, which is called Astronomy Sky Country. And it is the fourth book in the first knowledge series. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Indigenuity, a weekly radio show hosting conversations with Indigenous knowledge holders, showcasing all forms of Indigenous ingenuity. Indigenuity is broadcast live on Triple R every Sunday afternoon. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website or Twitter at IndigenuityAU.